I love, love, love that song. Thy mercy seat is open still. Here let my soul retreat. With humble hope attend thy will and wait beneath thy feet. Open your Bibles if you have them to Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 25. Romans 8, 18 to 25 is where we're going to be this morning. So if you'll open your Bibles there. Well, I, uh, I like to cook. I, let me rephrase that. I like to eat. And, and so in order to ensure that I get what I want to eat, I cook it. I'm not good at cooking, so don't ask me to cook for you. I won't do it, okay? But I like to cook. And one of the things that a member of our congregation has recently turned my attention to is the Great British Baking Show. And this baking show is a reality TV show. It takes place in Britain where it brings amateur bakers together. And that's the beauty of the show is that it's amateur bakers, it's not professional bakers. So that means that they often fail in what they're trying to accomplish. It often looks really terrible. And that gives me a little bit of hope. Because as I watch their bakes turn to mush right before the judges, it, it gives me a little bit of uh, consolation knowing that that looks like something I would have done. Okay, Now, um, th- so that's the beauty of the show. And I really love it. And I've sort of gotten into it and kind of binge watched it. But one of my favorite mistakes that they make, it's often so funny and it, me- it g- gets my spirits up, is when they're baking their cake and they accidentally grab the salt instead of the sugar. A mistake I've made before. And when you see somebody like that make it, it just gives you a little bit more hope. But here's the, the stink of it, I think, is when they grab the salt and they put a third cup of salt in there thinking it's sugar, they don't know until the end, until after it's done. They don't think to go back and taste it. Did I pour the salt in instead of the sugar? Of course they don't. So they just make it. And when it comes out, they realize, oh no, I think I use salt instead of sugar. But here's where it gets really interesting. Because one of the competitions is a blind bake, meaning they put it before the judges, and the judges have no idea who's done it. And what that means is they can't tell the judges, hey, don't eat that. I put salt in it instead of sugar, because that would give away who baked it. And so they just have to sit there in silence as the judge looks at this beautiful cake. You know, the other thing about it is, Changing sugar out for salt doesn't really change the nature of the cake. It doesn't change the shape of it. It doesn't change the look of it at all. You have no idea that that's what's in it. And so the, the chefs look at it and they think, wow, this is really beautiful. They see the mirror glaze on top and the swirls throughout it. And they think, man, this is, this is a really nice cake. They cut into it. It cuts very cleanly. They pull it out. And you, the audience member, knows there's salt in that instead of sugar. So they run their fork through it, cuts very clean. They put it in their mouth, and the music goes, dun-dun-dun, and they go, ah, good grief, and they spit it out, and they realize what's happened at that moment. But what's outside, the cake itself, looks pretty good. It looks appealing. What's inside is off. As we talked this morning in our 10th sermon in a series on worship, we're considering worship in the midst of suffering in the midst of trial. Now, suffering is one of those things that hopefully isn't produced in the worship service. I hope not anyway, though some may disagree. Suffering is one of those things that we bring to the worship service. It's still very much a part 
of our worship service because many in the room, while we are singing praises to God, are internally dying a little bit. We won't solve your suffering today. If that's you, we won't solve your suffering today. But I do hope that this worship service, the songs that we've sung, the prayers that we prayed, the sermon that I'm about to preach, I hope that it at least gives you a language with which to express it. So often we come to the worship service in the midst of suffering and we're convinced that there's something wrong with me. That I'm sitting here and I'm reading the words on the screen and they ring hollow. And I can't, I can't seem to voice them with any conviction. All I can seem to muster is just, can we please get this over with? And we feel like there's something wrong with us. It might come as a surprise to you that the Bible is filled with people that are struggling in the midst of the human condition. Read the Psalms. Every ounce of the Psalms is mixed with praise and sorrow. Read David in the Psalms, especially his Psalms of Lament. Go home and Google Psalms of Lament and read through them. You might be shocked at some of the language that he uses there. Some of the times you may read it and go, can we say that? I didn't know I could say that. That David just expresses, how long, O oh Lord, are you going to sit there in silence? How long until you answer me? We come to the worship service and feel like sometimes it's, it's our fault. We're not going to solve that this morning, but I do hope that it gives you a language and it gives you permission to express anguish to the Lord. And yet... Do it in such a way so as not to cross over the boundary of blasphemy. It's helpful to understand what Scripture says about God's intention for suffering. What is God's intention? How does He use suffering and how does it function in His plan for His children? We're going to look at what the text says in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, We wait for it with patience. Join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're all too familiar with suffering. However, 
we confess that it often leads us to have more questions than answers. It often leaves us in despair. So I pray that this morning you would conform our minds through your word to your thinking. Help us, Lord, to understand suffering and what you intend to produce in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. During the third sermon in this series, it was a sermon that I, I titled, A Work of the Spirit. And in it, I preached from the passage immediately preceding this one, verses 13 to 17. And so that was the third week of this series. So if you didn't hear that, you might want to go back later on and listen to that and, and understand what we're getting at in this series on worship. But in that passage, I, uh, I preached really two points, and I, I, I made two observations in that text. The first was that the Holy Spirit leads us to kill our flesh. The Holy Spirit leads us to kill our flesh. And then the second was that the Holy Spirit leads us to an affection for God. And the reason why we saw that in the text is as we're talking about worship, what we see is that we come to truly worship God by a work that the Holy Spirit does within us. The Holy Spirit is producing a work within us to kill the flesh and desire the Lord, and it draws us into a relationship that is what Jesus would call in spirit and in truth. He leads us to put to death the sin of our flesh, to kill sin in our own life, and then over the course of our life, we progress in sanctification, growing more in love with Him than the day prior. And so we come to Him in worship. It's a work that the Spirit produces in our heart. But the Spirit also produces this affection that as we come to God in worship, we're not as concerned with the external things, the external realities, the flavor of the worship service, if you will. But we come to Him, worshiping Him truly, crying out, Abba, Father. Abba, you'll remember, is a term of endearment for one's father that would be much akin to the word like we would use, Daddy. the Spirit is producing that within us as well, that we come forward and we have a deep guttural cry of affection for God as our Father. But then in the last line of that passage, which I only briefly touched on uh, when I preached it, in that last line, which is in verse 17, Paul closes that paragraph by saying, if we are God's children, then heirs, Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Here's the rub. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And it's that last line that troubles us so much. Why couldn't Paul have just left off that last line? I really like the idea of the Spirit conforming me and and shaping me and producing within me that cry. But then he had to include the, as long as you suffer with him. I wish he hadn't written that. So that means that in all of our oneness with Christ, as united to Christ as we are, not only does that mean that we get the glory at the end, but it means we get the suffering in the midst. Christ suffered and entered into his glory. And just as he did, so those who follow after Christ must also suffer and enter into glory. We see this 
something similar to this in Acts chapter 14, verses 20, verse 22, where Paul is encouraging the people, that, the disciples that he's made. He's, he's going back you know, down the row, and he's sort of meeting with them and gathering them together and, and trying to encourage them. And he says, it says in verse 22 that he's strengthening the souls of the, of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Suffering is a concept we all become familiar with over time, and it's, it's tempting in our suffering to think that, well, this must surely be from Satan, because what's happening to me is evil. Well, that's no doubt true, right? Satan surely has his purposes in your suffering, and they're purely evil, 100% evil. His desire for you is to curse God and die. Job's wife even tells him this, curse God and die. No doubt this is satanic in its nature, in its desires. But it's only partially true. If you look at all the great sufferers in Scripture, all of them understood that their sufferings came with both satanic and divine intentions. Everything that happened to them. Joseph, you'll remember, tells his brothers in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. What was the good? He says to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today by Joseph going down to Egypt. He saved the entire nation of Israel. But he doesn't say, God repurposed what you did for good. God was sitting down in the, on the throne room of heaven one day and he realized, oh my goodness, what did they do? Well, I gotta fix that now and change it. He says, what happened to me was 100% your evil intentions and 100% God's perfectly pure intentions. None of us could forget Job, the great sufferer of the scriptures. See, God brings Job to a point at the end. And in fact, before we get there, God brings Job to Satan's attention. A scene that makes us really uncomfortable when we read the book. God brings Job to Satan's attention. And Job, over the course of, of suffering many calamities with the satanic hope that he will curse God and die, God, however, has other intentions. He produces in Job a confession at the end of the book in Job 42, verses 2 to 6. Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this, Job quotes God, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. He quotes God again. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I have heard. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. By the end of his time of suffering, Job is not given an answer as to why. 
that throughout the book he's so longing for. He wants the answer why, and he's really not given the answer why. He is, however, allowed to see the Lord. He is allowed to look at the Lord. And he sees that his purposes and majesty are far beyond Job's own. That he's thought more than just about today. And then he understands that, that, yes, Satan has his plans in suffering, but God has his intentions too. In our passage this morning, Paul is continuing the discussion about suffering, and, and he's going to go on to explain at least some of its meaning. And I'm not going to pretend, as I said earlier, that this sermon is going to bring an end to your suffering, if that's why you're here this morning. However, I do hope that this brings you a tremendous amount of encouragement in the midst of of your suffering. There's two observations that I want us to make about what Paul says here about suffering in this passage. The first is that suffering produces the glory of Christ in us. Suffering produces the glory of Christ in us. Um, there are a couple of reasons that verse 18 is really important. And the word sufferings is really important in particular. The, the phrase there, sufferings of this present time, is not merely a kind of suffering caused by persecution. The word that Paul uses for suffering is a general word that is associated with suffering of all kinds. It could be sickness, it could be the loss of a loved one, it could be marital strife, it could be criticism, financial troubles, and many other things like impending death. It could be all kinds of things that are included in this word suffering that Paul is talking about here. And that's first important because as we understand the word suffering, often we can read that in the Bible and come away with the interpretation that it's just about persecution, that that's all he's talking about. As if the Bible doesn't speak to all of the things that we suffer on a regular basis, which it does. It speaks to both the suffering that occurs during persecution and the, the suffering that occurs just by being in the world. And Paul is talking in general here. If there are areas of your life where you desire relief, so much so that you have gone to the Lord and asked Him specifically for it. You qualify. The bar is intentionally low so as to include as many people in Rome as possible and in our body as well. Paul is also appealing to the general sense amongst all of us. This feeling that we get about suffering. So that all Christians can read his words. And Paul's essentially saying to them, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? You know what I'm talking about. You know this kind of feeling. But the second reason that this word is important is that it sets the context for verse 28. A verse that's outside of our passage this morning, but I want to look at it. It's, it's, it sets the context for verse 28. Look at verse 28 with me. And we know that for those who love God... All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, verse 28 is one of those verses that you hang on your, on your bathroom mirror. It's one of those verses that you put on your Christian t-shirt. It's one of those verses that before you go to that big job interview, your friend texts you. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Well, you love God and you're called according to his purpose. So that means what you're going to get in the job interview, I guess. You're going to get the... 
The job, of course. It's important to know that that verse isn't promising healing. It's not promising a job for you. It's not promising material blessing for you. In fact, it might actually mean loss. It might actually mean suffering. It might actually mean tragedy and poverty. Since it's set in the context of verse 18 of suffering. He says it will work together for good, but he doesn't define good until the next verse in verse 29 when he says to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That's the good. The good is that you would be conformed to the image of his son. That's the good that he's promising. All things work together for that good that you would be conformed to the image of his son that you would look like Christ in attitude and action and ultimately in resurrection. At the end of verse 18, he says, the glory that is to be revealed to us. Some of you have in your translations, maybe if you have the NIV, the glory that will be revealed in us and other translations, a few, probably ones you don't own, will say revealed for us. So which is it? Is it revealed to us? Is it something that's revealed in us? Or is it something that is revealed for us? The answer, you might be surprised to learn, is yes. You've heard this before, I take it. He uses this somewhat vague preposition that he he uses there that can have all of those meanings. And since the context doesn't clarify exactly what it is, he likely means all of them. And when it comes to talking about glory, and especially when it comes to Paul talking about the kind of glory he's talking about here, all that, all those meanings have merit within Paul's scriptures, within Paul's writings. The glory that he's talking about here is what? It's that moment when Christ returns. The moment when Christ raises the dead, when evil is vanquished, when sin and sickness and death all go into the lake of fire, when Satan and all of his minions and anyone that follows after Satan all gets thrown into the lake of fire, when the fullness of creation is restored. This is what Paul calls glory. And that is the glory that's going to be revealed to us. We haven't seen it yet. It's going to be revealed to us. But in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, uh, sorry, 4.17, we read it earlier. He says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He's essentially saying the same thing there that he's saying in our passage here. But there he uses for us. And he uses a different word so we know exactly what he's saying. That, that, that all of the affliction and all of the suffering that we go through is preparing for us. That what's going to be revealed is not just going to be revealed to us. It's going to be revealed for us. His meaning there would be something similar to when you have a really hard day at work. And you may call your friend or you may call a spouse or you may call whoever you call. And you're just venting. You're just frustrated. just so much frustration. And they hear it all. 
And then they say something at the end. As a means of comfort, my wife would say something to me like, well, I have dinner ready for you when you get home. (laughs) Quickest way to a man's heart, to his stomach, right? I said I like to eat. I told you. But they may say, you may say something like, if my, if my wife's calling me inventing, it may be, well, how about I, I rub your shoulders when you get home? That would, yep, that's good. It's something that you've got prepared for you after you've gone through a terrible journey. You've gone through a journey filled with trial and affliction. And this affliction, Paul says, is making that reward that's promised at the end even sweeter. The light and momentary affliction is producing that day that it would be sweeter than it would be without the affliction. It's being prepared for us. But it's also revealed in us. Go go back to verse 28 and 30. In this very passage, Romans chapter 8, he says that God is at work conforming his children into the image of his son which is going to be fulfilled, what does he say in verse 30 at the very end, when we are glorified on the last day. So in other words, the image of Christ is going to be revealed in us. So it's to us, it's for us, it's in us. All of it is painting a picture about suffering that it has a purpose. That it has a function. The day when evil is vanquished And the creepy predators that made it their function and role in life to abuse people for their entire life are going to realize on that day, maybe they already do, that suicide is no escape. That's the irony of this whole situation that we're in right now that's going on in the news that no one seems to be talking about. He was so desperate. He thought suicide was a way of escape. Oh, did he have another thing coming. Ushered into the judgment of God. John tells us about that day in Revelation chapter 6 when the the wicked flee and when they see Jesus sitting on the throne and they beg the rocks to fall on them and crush them that they might escape the fury of the wrath of God. When that day is revealed to us won't we be relieved to know that true justice has come the day when all our suffering is over when the cloud is lifted and we see the Lord high and lifted up welcoming us to his table preparing a banquet that he has prepared for us for us How sweet will the food taste then, knowing the journey that we've gone through? The day when I see that my own personal struggle with sin and temptation, with strife and frustration, with depression, with anxiety, with tears, with sadness, when I see that all of it served to conform me to the image of Christ. How grateful will I be that God has done this work in me the whole time and that he's finally revealed this work 
in me on the last day? How thankful will I be that the Lord kept me through all of this to accomplish this purpose when I know that every tear was worth it all? But do you realize the implications of this? If this is to be revealed to us, if it's to be revealed in us, if it's to be revealed for us, if it's to be revealed at all, that means two things. One, that God is already at work in suffering, in your suffering. And you can't see it. You can't see it until that day. It is going to be revealed on that day. It's a surprise that he's waiting to show you what all this suffering did for you. Paul even says this in verse 24 in our passage. If you look at it, you hope for it, but you can't see it. If you could see it, you wouldn't have to hope for it. But you can't see it, not until that day. Truthfully, when it comes to suffering, all I feel is pain. All I feel is the hammer of God striking me. I don't see what it's accomplishing. It hurts, that's all I know. I can't see the final outcome. All I feel is the cancer and the death. I feel the biting remarks and the criticism. I don't see the character of Christ coming through. All I feel is the financial struggle. I don't see the dependence on God that it's producing that will one day pay off. But then one day when the curse is lifted and the glory of Christ is revealed, on that day, it'll make so much sense. But it's not just we that are waiting for that day. Creation itself, it says, is longing. Creation, he says, is a longing for the day when the sons of God are revealed. And I think he means some subhuman creation is waiting for that day when the sons of God are to be revealed. Now, why? that's a funny thing. Why would creation be longing for that day? Paul seems to be looking back at Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, when God turns to the man and he punishes him for sin. And God tells the man, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. As punishment for Adam's sin, God curses the ground that he works. And some have wondered about verse 20 where he says, creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Who is this that has subjected it? I think Paul's talking back to Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, so it would seem apparent. Some have said that it's Satan that subjected it. Some have said that it's Adam that has subjected it, but that's obviously neither one of them because neither one of them have the ability to subject something in the way that the word means to subject it, to cause it to be submissive. Neither one of them have made the earth submissive to futility. Understand that the earth... Failing to produce for Adam when he worked it was not a natural consequence 
of his taking of the fruit. It was a supernatural, divine punishment as a result of his disobedience. But second, we know that it was God because what? It was subjected in hope. It was subjected in hope. A hope is, is not like playing the lottery. That's not what hope means. Hope is not like you would hope for the winning ticket if you would play the lottery. I put down a dollar. I hope I win a million. The word for hope here is something that you look forward to knowing that it will be fulfilled. He goes on to say about this hope in verse 24. In this hope, we are saved. It's the same kind of hope that saved us. You're not saved because you hope in Christ like you would hope in Vegas putting all your money down on black. That's not the kind of hope he's talking about. It's a hope with certainty. It's an expectation in his return. The earth itself is under the blanket of the curse that God subjected it to. And it's been groaning ever since that day to be free from the bondage of decay. It's as if creation is in labor awaiting the sign that the curse is lifted. And how will it know when the curse is lifted? When the sons of God are revealed. When Christ returns to bring his kingdom in fullness, the suffering that we endure in the here and now are producing the sweetness on that day when both we and creation will rejoice. Second thing I want you to see, suffering reminds us of the futility of the world. Look at verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You may notice in this passage that there are two groanings and two eagers. Creation, it says, is groaning and is eager, but now Paul says that we are groaning and we are eager. And I love this picture of eagerness. There's, there's some phrases and words that we use in the human language that, uh, that communicate a picture. Right, like when it used to pour, pour rain uh, outside, my mom used to call it a gully washer. It's a phrase, and we all know what that means. It's a gully washer. Or some people call it a frog strangler, or a chicken choker, or it's raining cats and dogs. There's a number of different images out there for pouring rain, but we get what it means. And not all the time does that transfer from culture to culture. Paul uses a term here, and the picture that the word paints literally means to stretch the neck away. To stretch the neck away. That's the word for eager anticipation, excitement, longing. Creation, it says, is stretching its neck to look over the horizon for Christ. It says that we are stretching our necks to see the return of Christ as he comes walking down the street or as he comes coming back in the clouds. But we don't just wait eagerly to see Christ. He says that creation and us also groan. It's a deep sigh. It's the kind of sigh that's in the pit of your stomach that you know the feeling, but you can't always express what it is. You know the sentiment deep down in the pit of your stomach that something just isn't right. It's a feeling deep down that you just want it to be over. And I know something is strange here. 
Paul sa- says the same thing in 2 Corinthians 5, 2, just a few verses after the one we read a minute ago, when he says, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. We groan being in the midst of the earthly suffering that we're in. So you see that the suffering that we endure in the here and now is what produces that groaning deep within us. The suffering that we're in, in the here and now, produces the groaning deep within us. Without the suffering, there's no longing. Without the suffering, the things of this world are satisfying to us. Without the death and the cancer and the frustration, the weeping and the tears, they're all serving to produce within us a desire for a home where sin no longer rules. We all want the curse to be lifted, and without the suffering, there can be no desire. There's no stretching of the neck away. There's no looking around the horizon. There's no looking down the road for Christ to return without the suffering along the way. We long to be in a world where the curse is lifted, where our loved ones don't go away, but where we enjoy such intense fellowship with one another that never dissipates. Without the suffering, we don't get the groaning. Without the suffering, we don't get the eager anticipation. But with the suffering, we grow disillusioned with the pleasures of the world. See, the world looks wonderful. It looks beautiful and marvelous. I was looking out my back window just yesterday, sitting at my table, the blinds open, one tree in our backyard has begun to change its colors to fall. There's nothing, people in Alabama don't appreciate this, (laughs) like you should. When the leaves change colors, it is so beautiful. Texans got no trees. They got mesquite trees, that's it. They don't change color, they just look dead all year. But when you get the leaves changing colors and when, you know, We get payback whenever they all fall to the ground, of course. There's that. But it's that beautiful picture, and you start to look at the world, and you start to see these, maybe going up to the top of a mountain and looking out over a valley, you see just the beauty and the majesty that this world was created with. The world also has treasures and pleasures aplenty. We can buy things. We can indulge in things. My wife and kids were gone for the entire week, and I thought I would enjoy peace and quiet in the house, and then it just became me and my own thoughts. And the quiet that I thought I wanted, I don't really want. When they came back, it's such a joy to have family. It's such a joy to have people. The world is filled with all kinds of treasures and pleasures. The world, if you will, is like a cake sitting on a stand. You look at it, It looks enjoyable. It's a perfect mirror glaze. You can see your reflection in it. The swirls of color going through it. It looks so beautiful. You cut it and you think, this is really going to satisfy me. You run your fork through it. This is going to be so great. And then you suffer and you put it in your mouth and you taste what it really tastes like. You immediately realize in the midst of suffering This can't satisfy. This tastes nothing like it looks. So many come into a worship service 
suffering, with agony on their heart. And they think, there's something wrong with me. But I think you are closer to the heart of true worship than you realize. Many people will push away from the church, will refuse to come to church in the midst of suffering. But I think you are closer to the heart of true worship than you realize. Perhaps God is giving to you a great mercy. As much as he decreases the pleasures of this world for you, it's mercy indeed. You can't see it now. Of course you can't. But as much as he has increased your hope for his kingdom to come in fullness, it's mercy indeed. We said at the very beginning, I said at the very beginning, third sermon in, put up a definition of worship. And I said, worship is the expression of the worth of God based on a proper understanding of who he is and celebrating with hearts and minds the salvation that he provides through Christ alone. In suffering, are you growing to see more of the worth of God? In suffering, are you growing in your understanding of who he is? In suffering, are you thankful for the salvation that he has provided for you, knowing that the suffering won't last forever? Then he is moving you in suffering, closer to the very definition of true worship. So in that, if for no other reason, we can rejoice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know that there are those that are in agony, hurting. Perhaps some that can't even bear to listen. I pray that you would remind them of this truth. That you would give them a desire to seek you in the midst of suffering. That you would convince them that you're wise beyond all knowledge. That you see beyond all our suffering. That your plans, your mind, your thoughts are way higher than our thoughts. Your desires are more than our desires. And that you love us. Convince us, Lord. May we be convinced that you really and truly love us. In Jesus' name, amen.